Good evening, good to see you all again. Good to be back. I wanna read just a couple of verses from the Gospel of John uh, to, uh, to begin our, our time together. This is from John chapter 12. I'm gonna read verses 32 and 33. And uh, um, actually, I'm gonna back up a little bit. I'm, I'm gonna begin at verse 24. End at verse 33. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there also my servant shall be. If any man serve me, he will my father honor. Him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying what death he should die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would empower it now, uh, teach us, encourage us, uh, correct us, and uh, pour out your spirit upon us so that we would be empowered to live for Christ. And we ask this in his name, amen. Amen. So um, the plan for this talk is that I want to begin uh, by just reminding you very, very briefly uh, what it was that sparked the, the, Re the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, you've heard it uh, many times before, likely, uh, but let me just refresh you. And then what I want to do is spend a goodish bit of time um, also telling you a little bit about what's going on in our world right now, uh, 2020. Um, and then I want to come back around and um, hopefully demonstrate to you why our world is ripe for reformation. So I wanna, I wanna talk to you about the theme, the, the gospel themes uh, that, that sparked the reformation with Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and Martin Bootser and uh, John Knox and others, just briefly. I wanna do a kind of an overview of the world we live in. How did we get to 2020? And um, what, is this, what is this thing? And then again, close, bring it full circle back um, to why I think all of this points to uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fact that our world is ripe uh, for another reformation. Uh, what does God do with messes? What does God do with messes? What does God do with abject failure, uh, slavery, abuse, centuries of violence, bloodshed, lies, what does God do with a mess? That's sort of the big overarching question. What does God do when everything comes apart? What does God do when families come apart? What does God do when, when churches are a mess? What does God do with nations that come apart uh, and cultures that fly apart? The gospel that hit Martin Luther a little over 500 years ago in the gut or between the eyes 
is the good news that when it pleases God to do so, he is free to raise the dead, set captives free, and change entire civilizations. This is not a problem for God. This is not a difficulty for God. It's the sort of thing he does. And this is because the gift that God fundamentally loves to give is the gift of his righteousness. He loves to give the gift of his righteousness. And his righteousness is not a vague, impersonal quality. His righteousness is not a vague, impersonal sensation. His righteousness is concrete obedience, real wisdom, power, and blessings. And it's all of those things in Jesus, reckoned to sinners by faith alone and actually imparted to us by the presence of his spirit living inside us. So when God gives his righteousness to people, it's, they, don't, they don't just sort of feel slightly warm inside. Uh, when he gives his righteousness to them, when he reckons them righteous and then imparts that righteousness to them by the gift of his spirit, they begin living obedient, wise, powerful, blessed lives. And that changes the world. That's, that's basically the insight that Martin Luther uh, came smack dab into. That's the, that's the truth of the gospel that hit Luther and changed Luther. Uh, that righteousness is revealed and accomplished through the preaching of Christ crucified. When preachers proclaim Jesus crucified for sinners in order to make them righteous, in order to take away their sins and make them righteous, when Christ crucified for sin is preached like that, the nations of men are drawn to him. The, the whole world is drawn to him and they're changed. This is what Jesus said would happen in the verses that I just read. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. And this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would die. He was talking about the cross. If I'm lifted up like that, if this, if this hour comes to pass, as he says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've arrived. I'm pretty sure it's about to happen. If this happens, I will draw all men to me. The whole world will be drawn to me. When Paul wrote the Galatians, uh, he said in chapter three that Christ had been crucified before their very eyes. But if you're reading along carefully, you might stop and say to yourself, but the Galatians did not live in Palestine. How did they see Jesus crucified before their eyes? Well, the clear answer is by Paul preaching it to them. When Paul preached the gospel to them, the cross of Jesus was placarded before their eyes. Jesus Christ crucified was presented before their very eyes and they believed. They were drawn to him, just like Jesus said would happen. This is what we ought to understand as the power of grace. This is the power of grace. The power of grace is that by the death of the perfect man, the Lamb of God, men are changed. Their sins are forgiven and they are given the gift of righteousness. And this gift of righteousness is the power to obey God. And it's the power to live wise lives before God. It's the power to live uh, in such a way as to have the blessing of God on you for the rest of your life. That's the power of grace. 
When Jesus ascended into heaven, this is the power that he had been given in fullness, and then he poured out on the church. All authority in heaven and on earth is the power of grace. The power of God's favor, the power of God's blessing. That was the power that Christ had received, and it's the power that he poured out on the apostles and upon all who believed. It's a power that's received by faith alone. So this is a very, very truncated, short summary. This is the gospel that hit Luther. This is the gospel that struck Luther and completely undid him, changed him, and then he began proclaiming. This free grace, this exhilarating grace, is nothing that we do. You can't, it's not penance, it's not indulgences, it's not something unlocked by the church. Um, it's not saying certain prayers, it's not saying certain, doing certain good deeds. It's just a free gift of God's grace and it changes people's lives. When Christ crucified is preached, the power of grace is what changes people and in turn changes families and in turn changes communities and cities and nations. Now, turn for a minute and say, okay, that was 1517, 16th century. That's what blew up there. It was this tsunami of grace. It was a, a nuclear reaction of grace. That happened because Luther and many like him preached that free gospel. Instead of planting seeds of faith, we have been planting postmodern seeds of doubt and cynicism for the last number of decades. And lo, we are now reaping a harvest of postmodern hijinks, which I think would be just a really good name for 2020. Postmodern hijinks. That, that's, that's what's happening. Um, We're in the midst of a massive cultural crisis that in many ways centers on the subject of power. A lot of what we're actually up against as dueling understandings of power. Modernism and the Enlightenment announced the power of humanistic reason and logic and science. So think of the Enlightenment, several hundred years, um, growing into modernity, but the thing that links it all together is faith in human reason, faith in the, the ability of, of uh, the ingenuity of humans, the ability to study and understand and engineer and, um, and so overcome uh, what they saw as the old superstitions of the Dark Ages, of the Middle Ages, of Christendom. So um, that, was, that was the power that was announced by modernism and the Enlightenment, the power of human reason. If we just think big thoughts long enough, we will invent great stuff. Um, including things like the modern state. We will invent the state and we will separate uh, religion and all that superstition from the state. We'll have secular states that will save us from religious wars. Uh, we will invent things uh, that will save us from sickness and disease. Um, that, that was where their faith was, the power of human reason, the power of human logic, the power of human ingenuity, science, technology. But that arguably culminated in two world wars. So if you, enlightenment, several hundred years, but ultimately culminating in two world wars, leaving many disillusioned with the promises of modernity. You know, think of 
um, two nukes going off in Japan is, is sort of the symbol, uh, the symbol of that. There's human ingenuity. Um, yeah, okay, we ended the war, but at what cost? Um, all these lives. Um, you know, and, and modernity sort of on both sides of the war. The modernity that was at, at work in Hitler's project, the Third Reich, the modernity that's at work in uh, communism, the modernity that's also at work in mixed ways um, with the, even on the Western side that says, if only we dig down deep inside and have faith in ourselves, we can overcome uh, these, uh, these evil forces. Our power can do it, our reason can do it, our ingenuity can do it, and so on. So at the end of a couple of modern, uh, a couple of world wars, um, many were disillusioned with the promises of modernity. Postmodernism, you, you should think of as the drunk little brother of modernism. The drunk little brother of modernism. Um, and it claims basically that modernism didn't go far enough in rejecting all that old stuff. So modernism said, we don't really, you know, if God is there, he's sort of distant and far off. He, maybe he started stuff, maybe sort of, we're not really sure. Uh, an old grandfather, sort of, you know, uh, senile grandfather version of God, maybe. Um, some maybe held on to faith in God in general, but the focus was on the power of human reason, the power of science, the power, we can do it, we've got this. And then what did they do? They blew up the world. Okay, so postmodernism is the drunk little brother of modernism, and it claims that modernism didn't go far enough in rejecting all that God stuff. They needed to completely clean the house. They, they didn't get rid of all of Christendom. They didn't get rid of all of um, uh, God's authority. They didn't get rid of the Bible completely. Um, and postmodernism comes along and says, the reason we ended up this way is that we did not distrust power enough. Power is dangerous. This is what postmodernism came along and says, and actually says all power is evil, all power is dangerous. And in fact, postmodernism came along saying, look, you gotta be careful. There's power hiding everywhere. There's power in language, there's power in stories, there's power in cultures and cultural norms. There's power in morality. There's even power in claiming to know the truth. And power does bad stuff said postmodernism. So postmodernism is broadly a project aim at, aimed at deconstructing all power structures. Anywhere they think there's power, the postmodernist project is deconstructing all those power structures, or at least what they call, would call power inequities or inequalities. This is where the verb to empower came from. It's postmodern. So if you've ever said empower, you are a postmodernist. <laughs> Repent. Um, the verb empower, this is where it comes from, though. It's the idea that there are power inequities, there are power um, disparities in the world, and where there are power disparities in the world, people will misuse their power. And you might not even know that you have this power disparity, which is what they've come to call privilege. You have certain privileges you don't even know about, you're blind to. And what you're doing, even when you don't know it, because you have more power than other people, more privilege than other people, you're actually abusing people, even when you don't know about it. Because they have less power than you, because power always corrupts. Power always is harming other people. And so they want to empower those who are weaker or victimized, whether they actually are 
or whether it's merely that they are um, from a minority culture or something like this, where they would say they ha there's an inequity here, there's a, um, there's a dis disparity of power, and you know that's bad. Bad things happen when there's disparities of power. Power harms. Um, but postmodernism backs itself up into an impossible corner since there it is using language to convince people of presumably what they think is true about the world and false about the world and wrong about the world. So they're using language and they're telling a story about how power corrupts and destroys and they're making their own claims about truth and morality even while saying it's bad. So all truth, you know, you've heard this on, on a few levels um, this is where relativism comes from, right? So all truth, the postmodernists will say, is culturally relative or culturally constructed, they claim. And so we should ask, well, is that statement true or culturally relative? Right? All, all truth is culturally relative. Is that truth culturally relative? That all truth is culturally relative? Right? You, you know, you've heard this, you know, you know there's, um, there's no absolute truth. Is that absolutely true? Well, now, wait a second. Um, or they say all language is a power grab. So they say language is a power grab. You're, you're trying to dominate people by the use of language, they claim. So we should ask, are those words in that sentence a power grab? Are you trying to grab power by claiming that all language is a power grab? Or morality is culturally constructed? Who's to say what's right or wrong? It's wrong to oppress the powerless, to which some enterprising freshmen should ask, but if morality is culturally constructed, why not leave the white heteronormative patriarchal culture alone? Who are you to try to impose your cultural norms on our indigenous ways? Right? So you know, they, they come trundling in, and this is awful, heteronormative, patriarchal, whatever, Western, Blah, blah, blah. Who are you to try to impose your cultural norms on our indigenous ways? I was born this way. Right? Talk about colonial hegemony. But postmodernism does have a point. It's a small one. But they have one. Human power, language, morality that is disconnected from Jesus is a terrible thing. It is. It does harm people. Power, language, morality, disconnected from Christ is a terrible thing. It really is frequently harmful and abusive. But the answer is not trying to pretend that truth and morality and power do not exist or that they're entirely relative. Gravity can be a very dangerous thing you fall, right? But you cannot deconstruct gravity, no matter how hard you try, right? And since they're right that sinful people misuse language and morality and cultures to harm other people, we should not let any sinners near the control room. We can agree with them that far, sure. But that includes them. 
Why should we let the postmodernists near the steering wheel? What makes them think they are safe? Now, basically what has happened is for, a, so postmodernism sort of as a, as a project started in the 1960s, late 1950s, and, um, and as, as, a, as a think project lasted up until about the 90s. And there's not been a whole ton of new thinks being thought um, in that um, project since then. But what happened though basically was they realized uh, for, for the 40 or so years where it was really kind of in its heyday, everybody sort of said, yeah, who's to say, who's to say? It was sort of this thick relativism. But they realized that relativism ultimately just um, devolves into nihilism. If it's all who's to say, who's to say, who's to say, then it doesn't really matter. Nothing matters. And they knew that's really not a very good story. And, they, and so this sort of postmodern instinct got married to social activism. And so basically, the current social justice movement is postmodernism uh, with a haircut or something like that. Still drunk. And he, he is now demanding the steering wheel. He's demanding a place in the control room. Um, he wants to deconstruct everything, but then he also says, but I need to have my hand on the, the, the power. I need to have my hand on the steering wheel and make sure everybody deconstructs just like I think they need to. Which is why you end up with all these, all kinds of inconsistencies, right? Why, how come, you know, that one over there gets deconstructed, but not that one? How come that one over there is necessarily you know, hegemonic, but why not this one over here? Um, it's wildly inconsistent, but that's because it's postmodernism grabbing the steering wheel. It turns out that basically we're um, that marinating in postmodernism over the last generation is a great way for a culture to be primed for panic and chaos. So marinating in this postmodern um, gravy is what it makes people primed for panic and chaos. So just think about 2020. Um, from a, a massive sham impeachment proceedings, remember that, that was actually this year. Um, the sham impeachment to this sort of um, blazing on fire media bias to censorship um, gone just ripe on um, social media platforms to cancel culture, you, like, you know, you, if you say something in, your, in a text message, you, you know, you could lose your job. Um, I was reading about a story earlier today where a Florida State University student just got exonerated for this, but he was this, uh, the president of the, of the uh, student body of Florida State University, and he's a, a practicing conservative Roman Catholic um, guy, and in a private text exchange, um, uh, suggested that there were, somebody asked about giving donations to various organizations and he mentioned that the organization Black Lives Matter and I think the ACLU and another one um, don't support Catholic values. That's, what he, that's all he said. And, and, then, and, then the, and like the rest of the text is something like, I love you all very much and I'm not trying to be you know, rude or anything, but you know, just, just wanted to raise that. Well, somebody took a screenshot of it, it went viral on campus and there was like a six hour public hearing in which basically most of the campus came up and just smeared the guy to, you know, kingdom come. Um, because he said he didn't think it lined up with Catholic values. Um, got kicked out, was voted off 
um, the, the presidency um, until a federal court told Florida State University that that's illegal. <laughs> he was just reinstated like last week. But, um, you know, just an, you know, one random, you know, one example at random, like, you know, who, who grabs it, you know, somebody sees a, a text message, a, a, a DM, a, you know, a tweet or whatever, and, you know, it, it goes viral, it's screenshotted, your boss sees it, you know, your, one of your professors sees it, whatever, and um, there's a decent chance you're toast. Um, to the latest, the sham uh, pandemic, um, we've had a number of pandemics worse than the one we've faced this year, this century, and never has it been responded to the way that it's been responded to. Um, to the BLM, Antifa riots, looting, um, burning down targets. Um, just this last week, it's happened again after a shooting in Philadelphia. Um, and um, because even if some massive injustice happened there, everybody knows the way that you fix the situation is you loot Walmart. I, I heard that there was this Fox um, anchor on site just right outside the Walmart and there's like some guy actually pushing a washing machine right behind them and kind of looking over them like, what are you doing? At the news reporters. And you're thinking, no, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> Um, so everything, all, all the, you know, so far, and we've still got, you know, nine weeks to go, eight weeks to go in this year, so hold on tight. Um, all of this though, I mean, how do you go from this, this careening, I mean, how do you have a culture careening from a, a, a you know, sham impeachment, this massive media bias, censorship, cancel culture, sham, pan, uh, sham pandemic, BLM, Antifa riots, looting, violence, um, all of it um, is a particularly, uh, is particularly flammable. I mean, why, why do all those things catch? It's, it's particularly flammable in a culture that has rejected Christ. But, but I don't just mean that in sort of a generic way. Like, yeah, it's true. I mean, when, you don't, when you're not Christian, bad things happen. No, no, no. It, it's more fundamental than that. The, the Bible teaches that everything, absolutely everything, coheres, holds together in Christ. Everything holds together in Christ. And that means that it really is Christ or nothing. You, don't, you, can't, you can't really have it either way. It's Christ or nothing. You can't have something in the middle. Um, Christ or everything comes apart. And so everything is coming apart right on schedule. We, we, we don't know what men or women are, what sexuality is, what marriage is, what families are, even what people are. Um, but we are also in the process of trying to throw away all meaning, all language, I mean, basically, we're in the process of throwing away all nouns. You know, who's to say what that is? This not only destroys our ability to communicate, but it reduces everything to coercion, power, right? If you can't communicate, what are you left with? Either nihilism on the one hand and apathy or you have to make them. You have to force them. All you're left with is coercion. And so words 
and numbers and graphs and charts and facts are not about really how they correspond to reality or not. Because remember, it's all culturally constructed. It's, it's not to be carefully considered and thought through. They're all more or less just ripe fruit to fling in the great cafeteria food fight. That, that's all the graphs and numbers are. They, they, they don't actually seem to correspond to anything. It doesn't matter if they do. If a man feels that he is a woman, very, very strongly, you cannot reason with him. You know, but you're a man. Right? Bring all the evidence you want. Right? Here, let me show you. A diagram. DNA. You know, whatever. Like, you know, there's these genes. There, you know, whatever. And you... you does it matter? No. It has, no, has, has absolutely nothing to do with the facts. It has nothing to do with the words. It has nothing to do with the science. It has nothing to do with the logic. So you have that. That's a problem. But if a court or legislation requires that kind of irrationality be honored, it has de facto caved to the mob. There's no reasoning with that. There is no amount of logic. There's no, you, you couldn't write just the perfect syllogism that, you know, all, do all the science. It would never connect. And if the court says you must honor that, the law says you must honor that, they're saying you must honor irrationality. You must honor incoherence. You must honor the mob. And I don't necessarily mean a violent mob in every case. It just means the feelings of the masses. And from time to time, it will get violent. From time to time, it'll push over a statue. From time to time, it will carry washing machines out of Walmart. Thus, what has happened this year? Basically, that. We've been careening from emotion to emotion. He's guilty based on what? We don't know. We're just sure he's guilty. He did something. There was a phone call. I don't know. Um, there's a, there's a, 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 this millions are going to die. Millions are going to die. How do you know that? We don't know. We did this. We put numbers in and out came numbers. And now we have numbers. Everybody's going to die. Shut everything down. Right? Masks don't help at all. Masks help. You have to wear them now or we're all going to die. Right? This, this is the careening. Right? Based on what? Right? All, I mean, and you just look at the, the actual scientific li literature. All, capital A, L, L, all of the scientific studies that were done over the last hundred years on masks. All of them. Say, so unless you're in an operating room in a highly controlled medical environment and you're changing them every like 20 minutes, there's no appreciable difference between wearing them or not. Does it matter? Not a bit. Science, 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 science. Science is a word to get people to do stuff. It has absolutely no connection to reality. It makes people feel a certain way. Thus, a panic was unleashed on the world by folks who don't believe in arguments only tactics. They don't believe in arguments, they only believe in tactics. Now, the Christian creed 
is, Jesus is Lord. That's the most basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. But it needs to be more than a mantra. It begins with the realization that Jesus is the Lord of every individual's salvation. It begins there. He commandeers men and women and he gives them completely new hearts. That's what Jesus does. When we say that Jesus saves sinners, we mean that he, we mean he goes after sinners and he saves them. Not with their help, not with their advice, not with their assistance. Romans 5 says that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we hated God, he came for us. He comes, he commandeers men and women, he gives them completely new hearts, and those new creatures are not sinless, but they begin to love God and they love to obey him. And they have an ever-increasing hatred of sin and evil. They are really changed. They become new people, new kinds of people. As in the last Reformation, we have many Christians in this nation in name who have not actually met the living Jesus. Go to church, sometimes, maybe regularly. They go to small groups, they sing in a choir. They went forward at a rally. They signed the card, they got baptized, they take communion, and they don't know Jesus. And the reason we know this is because, look around, Jesus does a better job than that. Jesus does a better job than that. Jesus is Lord. He, he doesn't kind of save people. He doesn't sort of save people. He's, oh, oops. No, he saves them. He rescues them, he pulls them out of the pit, he puts them on solid ground, he clothes them in his righteousness, and he gives them his righteousness so that they begin to obey, they have the power to confess sin and kill sin and repent of sin, and they have the power and wisdom to begin living for him. When Jesus saves, true Christians live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and they recognize that everything is held together and exists by his word, everything, he is Lord of all. And this is the only protection against the misuse of power by anyone. Christians don't believe they're always right. We believe that Jesus is the only one who's always right. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we say he's the only one who we would entrust with all the power. We don't trust any of us with all the power. All the power is given to him and if he wants to give a little bit of that power in limited ways and in particular assignments, he can, and he does. Now, I wanna basically bring it down to this question. What do you do in a world that you can't reason with? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but you sort of, 2020 feels like it's sort of just like banging your head on a wall. And, and, it's, and it's sort of been getting there for a while. I mean, you, you, you know, you try to explain the gospel to people who don't want to hear, or, you know, all the holes in Darwinism. That makes absolutely no sense at all. Postmodernism is a completely incoherent theory. Relativism is, is self-contradictory. And they're like, you're just saying that because you're racist. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, okay, how are we going to have this conversation? Right? You're... You're, um, you know, so you bring an argument up and, and they say, well, that's just, yeah, that's, you, you know, you're white privilege speaking. 
your you know heteronormative whatevers, and um, and it's you know that's mansplaining. I mean, how how do you, you know, there's no argument. Where's the argument? How do you, how, what do you do in a world that you can't reason with? And they say, science, science, science. Like, let's look at the actual scientific studies. They're like, yeah, we don't trust those. <laughs> Which ones do you trust? Look, do you love people? <laughs> yeah. What, what, which scientific studies do you trust? I don't think you understand. People are dying. <laughs> right? that, that's how it goes. What do you do in a world that you can't reason with? What do you do when any words, facts, or figures you raise to present another point of view are immediately sacked as evidence of your bigotry? What do you do in a world like that? Well, you do what Luther did. And you live for Christ. What did Luther have to go on? I mean, you know, there were like three popes in the century before Luther. And they were all shacking up with multiple ladies and kids. That was his church. They had wars. They had bubonic plagues, real ones. <laughs> what did he do? He said, I'm going to live for Christ. Well, as a, as a monk, as a preacher, I'm gonna live for Christ. And I'm gonna tell everyone that this is the only way out. The only way out is Christ crucified. You don't reason your way out of this. You can't argue your way out of this. It's Christ crucified. That's, that's why Jesus went to the cross. If there was a better way, don't you think he would have done it? We didn't need an argument. We didn't need a better song. We didn't need a better graph. We didn't need more numbers. We needed Christ crucified for our sins. So what do you do in a world that you can't reason with? Well, confess your sins. Is Jesus Lord? Did Jesus die for your sins? Confess them. Come clean. Do you have a clean heart? Do you have the joy of the Lord? Worship God. Go to church, worship him. Sing at the top of your lungs. Hear the word, eat the bread, drink the wine. Go to work and work hard. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Christ is crucified and raised from the dead. Sing psalms, work hard, go to church, confess your sins, get married, have kids, baptize them. Laugh, repeat. Why? Because Jesus is still Lord. But also because we know, that what, we know what God does with messes. We know what God does with messes. God is free to save, he's free to speak the word and make our culture storm become peace and calm. He can speak that word. He rules the wind and the waves and every human heart. And Jesus died and rose again for the salvation of this God-forsaken world. 
If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Was Jesus lifted up? He was lifted up. He was crucified for sinners. He was crucified for the salvation of this world. I, read, I was reading this evening uh, Genesis 19, which I'm sure is many of your guys' favorite chapters in the Bible. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, so I was reading this with my, my kids tonight. We're just working our way through Genesis. I, w- I, didn't, p- I didn't pull it out. I was like, guys, this is for you tonight. Anybody have any sin to confess? <laughs> now we're working our way through Genesis, and we get through Genesis 19, and, and um, I mean, what a, what a raw chapter. You know, the angels show up to, to Lot, and, and then he you know, convinces them they got to come to his house, and you're like already like, uh-oh. And we know that you know, Ab- Abraham just had the conversation with God the, the day before about whether he's going to save him or not, and he talks him down to 10. If there's 10 righteous, then I'll save him. And the two men show up, and they... They, they're in the house, and of course, then all the men of the city, young and old, I mean, what a, what a perverse, wicked city. Young and old, all they're out at the door. Bring those men out to us. We're going to rape them. And Lot's like, no, I, I couldn't possibly do that. And then, you know, not exactly his shining moment. How about my daughters? She's like, what? I, my mother-in-law was at the table. I don't think she'd ever heard that part before. She was like, What? And the men, you know, pull them back in, strike them blind. Like, we're going to get out. We've got to get out right now. Um, they, they wander away. He gets them, you know, says, get anybody else here in the city, your, you know, sons-in-law, anybody. And he tries to convince the son-in-laws they're not coming. They think he's joking. Grabs his daughters, his wife. They get out of the city. You've got to go. Get out. Get out. Don't look back. Get out. You've got to get to the mountains. No, we can't make it to the mountains. How about, how about the, this, this near city? Okay, you can go to the near city, don't look back. He gets on his way and his wife looks back, turned into a pillar of salt. I mean, just getting, you know, what kind of, there's not 10 righteous, right? Like there's, I mean, are any of those people righteous? They get to the city, God rains down fire and brimstone, burns it to a crisp. Abraham gets up in the morning, and there it is, burnt to a crisp. They get up into the mountains. And we, I mean, we don't know exactly how long it is, but you know, again, the daughters who are like, there's no men in all the earth. I mean, I don't know where they got that idea from exactly, but, you know, they say, let's get our dad drunk and sleep with him and have children by him. And they do. And they're impregnated by their dad. And my daughter said, that's disgusting. And I said, yeah, I know. And one of them has a son named Moab, from which come the Moabites from whom comes Ruth, from whom comes David, from whom comes Jesus. <laughs> what does God do with messes? I mean, are we, are we kind of at the point where we expect to see incest on the front page? I've seen it in the news already. Right? Are, we, are, we, are we there? Are we Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we, are we lots of daughters? What does God do with Moabites? What does God do with them? He tells stories of grace. His grace is more powerful than all our sin. He takes wrecked families and he makes them new. He takes wrecked cities and wrecked nations and he makes them new because Jesus was crucified for all of it. Father, 
Thank you very much for your word. Thank you that Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And thank you that when he was pierced, all our sin and all the brokenness and all the rebellion and all our arrogance and all our insanity was laid on him. So that by your free grace, you might make all things new. Father, I pray that you give us eyes of faith, that you give us the faith of Christ, that you give us the faith of Martin Luther, the faith of John Calvin, the faith of our fathers. Give it to us without measure so that we might live for you today and tomorrow. And we do pray, Father, that in the coming days and weeks, we would see reformation in our land, that we would see lives changed, sin forgiven, families reconciled, and healing. We ask for it in Jesus' name, amen.